Miracy. Hi, I'm Danny Eaney, one of your hosts for Course Lab, and I'm here with a special episode. You listen to Course Lab because you want to learn how to make online courses that are more impactful for your students and successful for you. My co-host Abe and I really appreciate the opportunity to dive into the design of a course and the architecture of the business behind it to help you take away what's most relevant to you. And many of our listeners, of course, are not just course creators, they're business owners. So that's why we thought you might be interested in a brand new show that just joined the Miracy FM podcast network. It's called Soul Savvy Business, and it's hosted by Katie Valentine. Soul Savvy Business explores the intersection of spirituality and business to help entrepreneurs leverage the potential of both. To give you a taste of the show, I'm running an episode from that podcast right here in your feed. I chose this particular episode because the guest is a lifelong educator who has designed award-winning educational programs and helped other online course creators design their courses for maximum impact. Check it out. I think you'll like it. And like most Americans, my perception of Islam was not favorable. And I'm reading the Quran now in Arabic. And I'm like, okay, where's the part where it says all these horrible things I heard on the news? And it's like, well, it's not on this page. It's not on that page. And eventually I was like, it's not on any of the pages. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, and you're listening to Soul Savvy Business. I am a soul-minded spiritual entrepreneur, a Christian minister, and a New Testament scholar, but don't let that scare you. I support all paths to the divine and use such tools as chakras, dreams, and intuition to get there. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of business and spirituality. We often separate our spiritual selves from our business selves, not fully leveraging the potential of either one. Is it even possible to integrate them if you aren't in a spiritually based business? This series aims to explore that and more. So keep listening as we illuminate the possibilities for living a life of ultimate freedom, peace, and abundance. Being a Muslim in America is not always easy, as you might imagine. Muslims suffer discrimination and suspicion, definitely heightened after 9-11, as Americans called the bombing of the Twin Towers in New York City in 2001. Yet, now more Americans than ever are learning about Islam and its diverse expressions. You may be surprised to find out that many ancient Greek and Latin writings, from Aristotle to Galen, survived and thrived in classical Islamic cultures, and we are indebted to Islam for their preservation. Our guest today is an American citizen who converted to Islam, and she is also a thriving business owner. Today, we're going to talk about that conversion, the interplay between her faith and business, and the challenges she has faced along the way. But first. In every episode, I offer a tip around abundance and your spiritual journey. As an entrepreneur, I know you work really hard. There are endless tasks, budgets, lists, emails, and of course, your actual work that impacts others. Abundance is attracted to your hard work and your ethical service, but abundance is also attracted to play. If you think about abundance as a friend, then of course it admires your hard work and dedication. But would you want to spend time with someone who never got away from work? Of course not. Playtime is a way we create space for fun, and this is something that abundance loves. 
I'm not talking here about hobbies that actually masquerade as more work for you. I'm talking about genuine play, whatever that means to you. For me, it means board games, especially when I win, but even when I lose. Playful threats with a water hose on a hot day. If I'm really lucky, it can mean a roller coaster or a luxurious ice cream cone while walking down the street. Science has shown how important play is for people of all ages, but really, it's just fun, and that's why we do it. Lots of us use play as a reward for hard work. There's nothing wrong with this, but play can also be its own reward, and it actually helps us get into the zone to attract abundance into our lives. So if you're ready for it, I'll challenge you to a game of whatever it is that you love to play the most. Ready, set, go. My guest today is a lifelong educator, Rebecca Cuevas. She has a BA in English from Harvard University, and she holds two master's degrees in education. She brings a creative, multicultural perspective to her work and has designed award-winning education programs. As the CEO of Learn and Get Smarter, she helps other educators plan and design their own impactful courses. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Katie. It's such an honor to be here. I'm so excited about our conversation. And I'm curious if anything resonated with you in the tip on the topic of play as related to abundance. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, they say that if you love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that that's so important. So many of us in this space, we, we literally are working 18 hours a day. But hopefully, if you're working 18 hours a day, you're actually enjoying most of those hours or all of those hours. And I've just been thinking how grateful I am for the amazing people that come to me and the work that they're doing. I always say, my mission is to support you in fulfilling your mission through teaching online. And I, it is play for me because I love doing it. And I mean, I figure elevating the definition of play too, because you're right, we tend to think of play as something frivolous, but really play, I'm guessing there's probably a Buddhist concept that I don't actually have in my brain awareness that I need. I don't know if you know the concept about play as a kind of divine attribute. I don't, but we should explore this immediately. <laughs> yes, I I'd love, love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, one of the things that we like to ask every guest is what word or words you use right now when referring to what you consider the divine. So I use God. I use Allah, which just means God in Arabic. I use the overshadowing wisdom, your highest purpose, the overshadowing rain cloud of knowable things, which isn't exactly God, but is kind of the wisdom that comes from God, your higher alignment. You know, I use terms ranging from the Judeo-Christian Western tradition, the Islamic tradition, and of course, in Islam, there are 99 names for God. Right. So that's an interesting point. And then also things from the, as you alluded to, the kind of I don't know what the right word would be, metaphysical or just spiritual tradition that the wisdom tradition would be the best way to put it, that applies within any religion or even outside of religion, but, you know, has to do with sort of understanding our higher selves as an energy system. That's so fantastic. And when we're using some of those words, it's to me, we're always trying to put something that's not nameable into human words that we can use. And that's really hard and, and really beautiful. I love some of the poetic ones that you had. What was the one, the un, the cloud? 
the rain cloud of knowable things. I believe that may, I, please forgive me if I misspeak and maybe one of our listeners knows and can correct me later, but I learned that in a meditation course that I took called The Nature of the Soul, where we were learning how to teach from a spiritual alignment. And my teacher used that to refer to the wisdom that overshadows. I took that class before the evolution of the cloud in a computer sense, but I feel the computer cloud is kind of almost like a a manifestation of that. Like every two-year-old now understands there's a cloud, you can talk to it and it will tell you stuff. You know, there's wisdom that's just available overshadowing us. That's gorgeous. And I live currently in Western Ireland, where there's a lot of clouds, a lot of rain clouds coming through all the time. So this is going to be my new favorite thing to think about whenever those rain clouds are passing by, which is daily. Rebecca, tell us just a little bit about your spirituality and your background up until now. Well, I'm really fortunate. I was raised in many different aspects of the, let's call it the Western spiritual tradition. I'm an American who was born overseas. My father was a foreign service officer. So I was actually born in Germany and spent the first five years of my life in Europe, you know, going into cathedrals and, you know, things like that. I was also raised by many different people. So I've been exposed to a lot of traditions. And then I grew up most of my life in New York from the age of five on. So I was exposed also to many different cultures and traditions from the Presbyterian, Jewish, um, churches, you know, the African-American churches. What I probably was lacking was the Eastern traditions, which I gained somewhat as an adult when I took that meditation course that I was telling you about. My teacher for that course said she could have taught the course from a Buddhist perspective, but most of us wouldn't have any framework for that. So she taught it from a Christian perspective. So basically, I had a lot of exposure to what I would call esoteric Christianity which is a very interesting approach. And really, it's the wisdom teachings, uh, you know, which are applicable throughout all different spiritual traditions. So I was lacking in my understanding of Islam. And that's something that I gained later in life. And that's, you know, kind of a big part of our story. So I can tell you about it later. But I had a really solid grounding in Christianity and Judaism, and also in kind of the wisdom teachings. I love the way you frame wisdom teachings and the way this was spoken to me is that the the wisdom traditions among religions are like the treetops that connect teachings that are very similar, although they're rooted in their own traditions. And so I love that you were able to um, gain wisdom from these wisdom traditions in your own upbringing. Tell us a little bit about what you've held on to from this upbringing, if anything. Well, first of all, I love that. Thank you for sharing that visual metaphor about the tree. That's so beautiful. And I really love it. And that helps me understand a lot of things. What was coming to me as you were talking was that I wanted to acknowledge my father, may he rest in peace, who was really, both my parents were really great spiritual teachers. So, you know, my father really taught me, he didn't use the tree analogy, but he taught me what you just said. You know, every time there was a holiday, say the winter solstice, he'd say, this is the time of year when, you know, it's dark out and now the light is coming back and all the different cultures do this in different ways. And he would always tell us, you know, different ways and then sort of guide us in his way. So what I learned from that is that all the traditions have value, but it's also very good to value whatever your own tradition is. I also have a really great story about my mother. I don't know if it's appropriate to share it. Um, It's my first memory, actually. Oh, we absolutely want to hear that. 
<laughs> so this is my first memory. And I want to mention that I have a master's degree in child development. So I can tell you that there is absolutely no way that a one and a half year old child can have this memory. However, it's also my memory and I remember it. So that tells you there's something about our understanding of child development that perhaps could be modified when we get further along in our scientific revolution development. So my first memory was we were in Germany and I was 18 months old. And it was almost Christmas. And my mother made me a hard boiled egg. And in the tradition of the 1950s, she put it in this adorable little egg cup. And it was a Santa Claus egg cup with a cute little hat to put on top of the egg, a Santa hat. And she drew the face. And, you know, I just thought this was adorable. And then she sliced through it horizontally. And I could see the yellow yolk in the middle and the white rim outside. And I just burst out laughing because I realized that my mother was a great metaphysical teacher. And I got this joke or pun or whatever you want to call it, which was that the egg looked like the sun, the sun in the sky, S-U-N. And it was almost time for Jesus's birthday, peace be upon him. And in the Christian tradition, not in the Islamic tradition, but in the Christian tradition, Jesus, of course, is understood as the son of God. So I got the pun. I was one and a half. I couldn't read or write in any language yet. And I just thought this was brilliant. And I was laughing my head off. So that's my first memory in this life. I love that that egg has been informing you for all of these years. Well, kind of update us between then and now and tell us about your spiritual or religious practice now. So, well, in 2011, I became a Muslim. And I think you could have probably voted me the least likely person to ever become Muslim. I mean, <laughs> you know, I grew up in New York and I had, I mean, of course there is a vibrant Islamic community in New York, but I had no connection with it. I didn't know any Muslims, but I was always intrigued by stories. For example, I have a copy of the Arabian Nights that was given to my grandmother, my mother's mother, when she was nine years old, which was in 1911. So it was given to her by her great-grandfather. So we do have that tradition of reading the Arabian Nights. And I also, when I was 16, had the opportunity to visit the Alhambra Palace in Spain, which is basically a meditation in the form of architecture. And so I was always very impressed by Islamic civilization. My father's college roommate was a professor of Arabic. And so I actually got to hear the Arabic language. And that was really what led me to Islam was Arabic because I love languages and I really wanted to learn Arabic. And it was so hard. It took me many, many years to be able to learn it because it just wasn't taught in ways that were accessible to me. So in 2007, I started studying Arabic at Cal State San Bernardino in the summer language program they had, which was a new program at the time. And in 2009, I had the chance to go overseas to Jordan on a federal scholarship. And in 2011, I got a one-year-long fellowship. And as part of my language school that I was at, which is the Qasid Arabic Institute, which is an amazing school for, for learning Arabic in Jordan, they have a program called Tajweed, which means um, Tajweed is an Arabic word that means making beautiful. And it's a way to learn Quranic recitation. And like most Americans, my perception of Islam was not favorable. And I'm reading the Quran now in Arabic, and I'm like, okay, where's the part where it says all these horrible things I heard on the news? And it's like, well, it's not on this page. It's not on that page. And eventually I was like, it's not on any of the pages. The Quran in any translation is not really the Quran. In order to really be the Quran, it has to be in Arabic. And so having the opportunity to really read the Quran in Arabic, I had this sort of visceral encounter with the word of God. 
And, you know, that is really what led me to become a Muslim was the Quran itself. You know, God speaking to me through the Quran. I went and I sat and talked to one of my, uh, one of the administrators at my school. And I said, you know, I'm thinking that someday I might like to become a Muslim. Could you tell me what is involved? She started crying, you know, then she went and got all the other, they got all the other teachers. And so it was a very inclusive experience, quite a remarkable experience, very profound experience and very loving experience. Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing that. I imagine that your community at home probably had quite a few questions. Yeah, it was hard for people. First of all, just when you look different than you're used to looking, you know, people have to get used to that. Um, And so one of the things I did was start my Instagram. And, you know, all of this was kind of happening when I was first starting to say, okay, I want to have an online business and an online presence. How do I do that? How do I show up? And especially how do I show up as a newly Muslim female entrepreneur wearing a hijab. You know, that was all new for me. So I started my Instagram page, which, you know, really was just designed to be fun. And basically, I just posted my fashion looks every day. Whatever I was wearing that day, I just took a picture and posted it. I also would give my outfits names, you know, like I think I have one called Cleopatra goes to a business meeting or, you know, they have funny names. So it's me playing, you know. God wants us to experience beauty and joy. I I love that you led with that today, Katie, you know, the play. That's what I'm doing. I'm playing. I'm saying, how can we be modest and express humility and submission to God's will, but in a way that is joyful and abundant and playful? I loved what you said in the beginning about integrating our spirituality and our business practice. And I think you just, you're helping me find it as we're talking, which is that to create a form of play that to be in the zone and the flow of whatever your own creative genius is, because my mission is to help people nourish and nurture their you know, creative genius, and in a way that feeds others and that is inspired by the divine, not inspired by what can I get, but by what can I give. So Rebecca, I love everything that you've just said. I'm reminded of when I was in the process of becoming ordained. I was given preliminary status as an ordained person within my denominational body, but I hadn't yet had the ceremony. And so I bought a clergy collar, but just as a woman clergy, it was important to give myself some kind of signature so people would understand who I was. I remember, oh my gosh, the first time I put that on, I thought this feels very strange because it marked me differently than I had been marked before. Not quite the same as you wearing the hijab, but all of a sudden I thought, oh gosh, this is a signal. This is a signal to the world. And it kind of set me, not apart, but people would ask about it. And then sometimes people would come up to me for prayer. And so that I I love what you're talking about of wearing hijab and coming back and navigating your way in the world with this new identity. I love that you shared that. And I think that's really powerful that insignia tell people who who you are, which, you know, can be dangerous. I mean, I know people who've been killed because they were wearing the wrong color hat in the wrong neighborhood. I hadn't really consciously thought of it before, but I think in a way, wearing the hijab fills that role for me as well. Like I once was swimming in the swimming pool at my health club and I had my burkini on, which is, you know, it's an Islamic swimming suit, so it it covers everything up. And um, somebody came up and started telling me that Allah wasn't God and so forth. So I said, this is a teaching moment. I explained to them, there's many Christians who speak Arabic. And Allah is the word that's used in the New Testament. And Arabic-speaking Christians were some of the first Christians there were, you know, in Iraq and so forth. And Allah just means God in Arabic. And I can't say for sure that it changed opinions, but I think that 
in a sense, when you put on your insignia or I put on my hijab, what we're saying is I'm standing up as a teacher and come to me if you want to learn something new. And sometimes even when people come in that oppositional way, they are coming because they want to learn something new. So we need to recognize that. Yeah, resistance indicates that there's something there. We can't always break through the resistance, but that the resistance is there means that something is waiting to be learned. There's an attraction. You know, I wrote my first book, which is called Hello World, Meet Mother Rebecca, the autobiography of a fictional Victorian know-it-all. And somebody bought the book, read the book, and then wrote on Amazon, quote, this is the worst book ever written, end quote. And I thought to myself, (laughs) that's amazing. Like, they read all the books, right? And then I said, you know, this is somebody who really wanted to get the message of the book, but wasn't quite able to. So they're frustrated, you know, and I just said, let me just send love to this person, you know, because I mean, I've had that experience myself. I mean, many years before I became a Muslim, I walked into a location, there was some Arabic writing on the wall, and I had like this visceral negative reaction. And I thought, it's the protesting too much moment. It's like, When you see something that you know is going to change your life and you're not quite ready to have your life changed yet, you can have that kind of resistant reaction. Oh, yeah. So I think we have to make space for that for ourselves and our students. And as a teacher, we have to make a space for our students to go through resistance. If you see that resistance, it means that people are processing what you're saying and they're understanding that it means they have to change. And we all resist change. So to me, being a teacher is about creating a space for change and then supporting the change. That's such a profound educational and pedagogical insight. I'm so glad you said that because as you can imagine, teaching as a Christian teaching about metaphysics, some Christians hear the word chakra and of course all their alarm bells goes off and their their resistance is really, really high. So thank you for identifying that resistance. That's beautiful. I'm so excited to to share with you, you know, one of the topics that I think a lot of my work involves, and I, I know yours does too, is that integration of different aspects of wisdom tradition. And some of the dichotomies that we've been taught are dichotomies are false dichotomies. You know, there really is no separation. And I think that tree metaphor that you gave was really powerful in that way. If you only look at the separate branches, you might not understand they're part of the same tree. But if you can see the whole tree, you'll understand the greater whole. Well, that's beautiful. I did not come up with that analogy. I can thank Vallejo Christian Church and their series on mysticism that I attended, I don't know, probably 12 or 15 years ago, who gave me that analogy. So thank you, Vallejo. If anyone from that church is listening, you know who you are. I can't remember exactly who said it. Women definitely have unique challenges as entrepreneurs, and we have to navigate around potential gender bias all the time. I personally encounter a lot of assumptions that are made about me based on my gender and also being an entrepreneur, but also being a clergywoman who guides people through metaphysical awakenings. A lot of people are shocked to find out that women can in fact be clergy and that some clergy can be into things like chakras and also be passionate about queer identity and inclusion in the church. The resistance to all of these, as you can imagine, is really high, but it's definitely not all negative. My church in California allowed me to shepherd them just as I was, and they celebrated my identity and threw a party when I was ordained. They embraced transgender inclusivity, and they even began hosting Trans Awareness Week in partnership with our local Stonewall Community Center. They even embraced my woo-woo self without trying to change me. 
As an entrepreneur, I sometimes get resistance to all of these pieces of me through nasty comments online or emails to correct me from my sinful ways. You know what? Those people just are not my ideal clients. But more often, I get people who have really curious questions. Given my own experiences, I could imagine that being a Muslim female entrepreneur in America could be met with some resistance. So I asked Rebecca if she's had to deal with any preconceived notions or issues in her business surrounding her religion. You know, I've really been very fortunate in the online space. I think it's possible that people are being repelled and I just never see them, which is good, right? You know, but the ones that are coming to me are the ones that aren't put off, you know? And so I've just been very blessed by the amazing people that have come to me of all different different faiths and traditions. I have experienced some negativity, but it wasn't in terms of my business. Once as a consumer, I was looking at cars and I went into a car dealership and the assumption was made that I was probably illiterate, had no money and didn't know anything about buying cars. You know, that was that was definitely that place didn't get my business. Right. I think that leads us really really well actually into the next question, which is The Muslim community, or at least my perception of the Muslim community, is that it's very tight-knit and supportive, or at least has that potential. And I'm curious if you found being Muslim is beneficial to your being an entrepreneur. Well, you know, I can't really separate them because I really became an entrepreneur and a Muslim at the same time. Um, I don't think I would be an entrepreneur if I hadn't become a Muslim. We find women, innovators, and even business owners throughout scripture and in Christian history too. They had to work within patriarchal systems in place at the time, and we still see creative thinking coming through in business. One example from the Hebrew scriptures is Rahab or Rahav. We have a dual tradition of her being a prostitute, but also an innkeeper. No matter what she was, it took business skills. We also see a woman like Deborah or Devorah, who doesn't own her own business, but uses entrepreneurial skills in her work as a prophet and a judge. In the Christian scriptures, Lydia is named as a woman who deals in purple dye, probably a highly exclusive trade, and Priscilla is a tent maker along with her husband, Achilla. Catholic nuns have been innovative entrepreneurs for centuries, making jams, beer, or other goods to support themselves. Creative and ethical entrepreneurship and spirituality actually go hand in hand. As I was about to learn from Rebecca, Islam has a female entrepreneurial tradition as well. I have a very dear friend, um, Aisha Dani, who was born a Muslim and just has a lot of erudition. And one of the things that she taught me was that Islam has a strong tradition of entrepreneurship. If you think of Khadija, May God be pleased with her, who is the first wife of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. She was an entrepreneur, and she was also older than him, too. And she was like a successful camel trader. So basically, entrepreneurship, you know, is is a value in Islam. And the idea that you should have, you know, the freedom to obviously prioritize your worship, and that when you've earned enough for the day, you don't need to keep earning more. It's not about money. It's about having a balanced life. And also the value of giving to charity and, you know, feeding the poor and the hungry. And so those are high values in Islam, as they also are, for example, in Judaism, Christianity, I'm sure every religion. But the idea of entrepreneurship being valued from a spiritual perspective 
was really a radical idea to me and something I just learned fairly recently. So I'm still very much learning. I feel like I'm trying to create a new business model for myself because I know there's so many great business models out there and they're highly effective and they work, but they're not working for me for what I'm trying to do. I feel like I need to create my own business model just like I created my own course design model. A shout out to my namesake, Rebecca. Okay, it's actually an Arabic name and it basically means yoga in the sense that it means a connection, like it's a companion. So that to me, it's the companionship and the traveling togetherness of the soul and the body, the integration, the ability of you know, to nourish ourselves with life-giving water from that higher source and to share it with others. I guess that's the business model that I want. I'm actually making myself cry. So, and that's thanks to you, Katie, for providing this opportunity to reflect, which I was struggling with. And, you know, Jesus, peace be upon him, said whenever, and you have to correct me if I get the number wrong. Did he say whenever two or more of you or three or more of you are gathered in my name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, we need other people I like to say, just add people and stir, you know, we need other people in order to think together so that we can bring through some of these ideas that help us all grow. You know, we need community. Rebecca's entire career and her current business are all about learning, teaching, and valuing education. That got me to thinking about the value of education in Islam. As a Christian scholar, I'm grateful to Islamic scribes. As I alluded to in the introduction, Islamic scribes were reading and commenting on many documents and manuscripts, especially from ancient Greece and Rome in the heyday of classical Islam. Though European Christians had access to many of these manuscripts, they weren't reading them because they didn't have anything to do with Jesus or the church. As Islam spread, conquerors became acquainted with these other ancient texts. Scholars copied them and translated them into Arabic. This came back to Christian Europe in the Renaissance, due in part to the amazing work of these Islamic scribes. Because of the values of Islamic traditions and education, Westerners today are indebted to Islamic culture for keeping the discussion alive around ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Islamic scholars were reading, commenting, and building on ideas from these ancient two cultures. We even have a few texts that only survived in the Islamic world. Thinking about all of this made me wonder if the traditional values of Islam and the area of education were part of the appeal for Rebecca, or if that history of scholarship in Islam has informed or inspired her business, maybe even her conversion. Wow, I mean, such a great question. I feel like I could spend the rest of my life unpacking that question. So first of all, let me take it one piece at a time. Education. My son has described education as the family business. I mean, I'm the eldest daughter of the eldest daughter going back four generations. I'm a teacher. My mother was a teacher. My stepmother is an amazing teacher. My grandmother's a really good teacher. My father's a good teacher. So teaching is kind of a tradition that has been passed down. So it was never a doubt that I would be doing something to do with teaching. My conversion actually was in 2011. I didn't actually found the business till 2015. So... I would say it hasn't been so much specific to Islam. I think that the idea, it's more about the wisdom in general, applicable in all the spiritual traditions I've been exposed to throughout my life. If you think of like, how did I become a Muslim? It was from reading the words of the Quran and experiencing the sacred meaning, you know, which I also experience in in 
the texts of holy texts of other faiths. So I feel like as teachers, we are entrusted to teach the word, you know, whether it's the word about science, the word about, you know, history, whatever our words are, we're using words in a way that helps bring more light into people's lives. And this is something that's very much endangered right now by the whole type of energy that was burning books and so forth. You know, that group has been around for a long time in every spiritual tradition. And it's interesting you mentioned fun at the beginning because I heard a quote, and I can't remember where it's from, that a Puritan has been described as someone who suspects that somewhere someone is having fun, you know, and that it has to be stopped. I just love coming back to the idea of play, of like, if you look at some of these beautiful architectural buildings, like the great mosques with beautiful, you know, tile roofs and stuff like that, there's a quality of play in that art and in that design. And what I always say is when you get your course designed right, it's going to have the feeling of like a knife through butter. There's going to be that, that flow, that smoothness. You know, if it's not designed right, there's going to be like screechy, resistant. So I love the idea that we want to bring that quality of play into our work in a way that transmits the higher meaning that comes from that higher source, you know, through our minds, to our hearts, you know, to our community. To me, that's really how I understand my role as a person, as a teacher, as an entrepreneur, and as a spiritual person. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you. Tell us what it means for you to be in alignment spiritually. So being in alignment would be that you've created something that allows the higher purpose to shine through. Coming back to the tree metaphor, too, a very beautiful verse um, in the Quran called the light verse, which talks about a tree that's neither of the East nor of the West, that shines with its own light, that fire hasn't touched it, but it's shining with its own light, like an inner light. Some people would describe that as analogous to the chakra system. Some people might think of it as the burning bush, you know, that Moses saw. Certainly the brain and nervous system does look like a tree as well. I think being in alignment is when that tree is illuminated, when you see the light that comes from that tree and you're living by that light. That's gorgeous. Thank you for bringing that verse to our attention because I know I'm not familiar with most verses from the Quran and I imagine many listeners are not either. And that's a gorgeous one just to bring into our awareness. So, and I love bringing this alignment philosophy that you have with spirituality to course design and to illuminating um, for others as as teachers and as entrepreneurs. A hundred percent, I agree with you. Let's talk about money and abundance. Have your spiritual or religious beliefs ever influenced the way you think or feel about money and abundance? Oh, gosh, it's that's such a powerful subject. You know, I've been so blessed in my life. I mean, I was just born into a life where I didn't, I never had to worry about money. And ironically, the only time I've ever had to worry about money, the year that I made six figures, and suddenly I had to worry about money. It took me 5.9 figures in expenses to get to the six figures in revenue. but. Then because I had profit, then I had to pay a lot more taxes, some other things. And it was so weird. To me, that focus seems to have been out of alignment. Before that, I never had to worry about money. So what I'm trying to do now is say, okay, that does not work. You know, I cannot be focused on making money as a goal. It's never been a highly motivating goal for me. Obviously, we're all businesses. We need to make money. But my business is really, how can you make a difference with online courses? There's many people teaching how to make money with online courses, and they're doing a brilliant job of it. So that's not my area of expertise. But 
if I focus on that, it takes me out of alignment. Rebecca, this has been so fabulous. I'm so excited to share your experience with the listeners. But before we do wrap up, do you have any parting advice to share with our listeners? I would say that whether it's founding your business, creating a course, or just anything that you want to do in life, always start by staying receptive to the higher purpose. You know, why are you doing this? Anessa Collins, one of my students and colleagues, we wrote a series for LinkedIn. It's actually a series of articles. And we looked at that alone survival show and what it means in terms of mindset and in terms of what principles led to survival. And we're using survival as a metaphor for entrepreneurship because we're also alone as entrepreneurs often. And what we discovered was that being in touch with your why and being in alignment with your why for what you're doing is the single strongest factor that leads to success. I think when I've been out of alignment, it's because I tried to make myself in charge of the why. And that is just not the right attitude. It's certainly not an Islamic attitude. You know, Islam means submission to God's will. So being receptive to that higher why and then causative in terms of what you create based on your receptivity, I think that is kind of the the right positioning. That's beautiful. I know when I realized my kind of why, my purpose for why I do what I do, it made a huge difference. And that's the, the metaphysical practices that I incorporate actually led me to my calling, to my ordination, and now to my teaching. And I think without that, I probably would have actually left my faith tradition. And that wouldn't have been necessarily bad, but I'm really happy that I am where I am. So thank you for that. And I wholeheartedly confirm it. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. What is the best way for people to find you? Well, they could go to my website, learnandgetsmarter.com. If they want to just see the Instagram, that's kind of fun. Just Mother Rebecca. Lovely. Thank you. I'm Katie Valentine, and you've been listening to Soul Savvy Business. Soul Savvy Business is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Just Between Coaches and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. I wrote this episode with Melissa Deal and Cynthia. Melissa assembled the episode. Danny Eney is our executive producer and post-production was by Post Office Sound. To make sure you don't miss great episodes coming up on Soul Savvy Business, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you liked the show, please give us a starred review. It is the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thanks, and we will see you next time. All right, are you ready? Wait, what's my cue? It's a behind the scenes kind of thing. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. I'm Melinda Cohen and your host for this show. I also know that I'm listening when, again, my mind is relaxed. So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great frame. That's a, that's a really great way to think about it. 
Um, I think so, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just, you know, either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's, you know, the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is... Ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so while I love what's on the other side, I think navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah, because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And I don't know if it's, you know, societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness. My desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness, fully confident so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now. And over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. Why are you stopping the recording? <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.